0: Welcome to My Basement, everybody. Happy Friday. I hope you are all doing great out there and you've had a solid week and you are ready to have a very fun weekend. How about we start it off with an awesome conversation with the one and only Bill Roper, who I've known, I think, for about 25 years.
1: Yeah, crazy, right? At least It's like uh, way, way too long. Thank God we were both six when we yes. met. That's yeah. correct. Yes,
0: yeah. that is correct. Uh, and speaking about being uh, six years old, I got an early birthday present as a super chat from Jonathan McFowl. Uh, that is very kind, and also the age that you put in there is also incredibly kind as well. Thank you, good <laughs> sir. Um, hello to Alpha Cat and Sam. I am one one one. Alpha Cat one. He was the first person in the room today. Mike Williams. Happy Friday, hola, coming with the uh, enthusiasm, I love it. I've got uh, Clayton Blair in there, Peter Kokosar, uh Nintendo Boy 17, Shirley Castle, great to see you. Um, we are going to have a lot of fun, uh, but f- before we get into this conversation with this gentleman that has worked at Disney, worked at Blizzard, uh, Cryptic Studios, I believe, for a long yep. time, uh, Hellgate London, was that, what, what was the Flagship studio Studios, called? Studios. Yeah. What was it called? flagship studio flagship of course yeah. i can't even keep track of all of these different I know. properties I, and brands
1: i got into it thinking i'd be like at one studio my whole career and then you know i've had the good fortune of getting to sample a lot Yes. Yeah. Including a stint in
0: London. We're going to get into all of that. But first, um, I have to give a shout out to our sponsor. Not only are they sponsoring the rundown, uh, but the gaming stadium is also sponsoring us. So they are Canada's leader in online esports tournament facilitation with tournaments happening every weekend. You don't want to miss out on this action. You can join up with them at TGS.GG. That's TGS.GG. Uh, please follow them on Twitter and uh, give them a, a, a high five from me and a thank you from me. Um, they are very cool people, and it's great that they're supporting us. So thank you, the gaming stadium. All right, Bill Roper is here, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and Bill comes to us uh, via Blizzard initially. Was that your very first
1: stop? Yeah, 19, 1994. I was the 17th employee at Blizzard. Uh, I came by way of uh, doing desktop publishing at Kinko's Copies, uh, <laughs> is where I was before that. Uh, and I, I actually had a really good friend, Stu Rose, who's still an artist in the industry, who worked there and said, hey, we've got you know a lot of projects going on right now. So we're doing some contracting for music. So the first thing I did was all the music for the PC version of Blackthorn, um, specifically. That which was your was very the- first credit. That was when my you, very first credit. Was was that when
0: you look yeah. up Bill Roper on Wikipedia or Moby Games? That'll be the first thing that you, yeah. It, I hope to. it better be,
1: <laughs> but <laughs> it, yeah, it was yeah. that was like the best uh, that was voted like best guy with a gun game because that's the kind of rewards we have. Black Game was industry. awesome, man. Yeah, Black it was Storm. great. The whole no look, yes, like shotgun thing, like, yeah, it was great. Jim Lee did the um cover art, yep like nuts right so yeah i did that as a contractor and then right at the same time i was doing that they were uh starting to promote an upcoming game called warcraft orcs and humans and they had uh they were doing i think it was summer ces back in those days when they had two shows for consumer electronics show and where you went to show games there was no e3 yet that stuff didn't exist and um we they said hey we've got this video footage that we've shot showing the game off but we need some voiceover over the top of it to talk about what it is and what it's about. So I said, great. And I sent them a demo tape of me saying some stuff and I put it over, um, Mars from host, the host, the planets awesome. They have the epic sound. I said, okay, here's an audition tape. Uh, and they brought me in Glenn Stafford, uh, was the, the music person there at the time. Yeah. And, uh, Glenn sat me down in his office, which was the closet of the, Office building because it's the sure. quietest place, right? Sure. <laughs> Windows and doors. Yep. He crammed his closet with egg crates on the walls, sitting shoulder to shoulder in this little space. And he brings up this video fly through, and you can go find it online where the camera's coming through some trees up to a castle. And in 1994, it was like, it was yeah. mind blowing. Right now, it's like sub Minecraft, but then it was like insanely good. Yeah. And he said, Yeah, here's where to talk about how orcs and humans are fighting. I said, are, Is there a script? And no no there isn't <laughs> so i just grabbed a a, a a pen and some paper and started jotting down ideas and that's where the whole the wait age a second so, so they brought you in
0: to do voiceover voice and yeah.
1: you're creating lore yeah for Warcraft. on the fly yeah so was, on the fly yeah, i wrote some stuff down and then it was like you know in the age of chaos two factions battled for dominance oh you know the to the orcish hordes right and just like writing all this stuff down just like off the top of my head, writing it down. Welcome to the world of Warcraft. Like, wow I'm, did Did you, you have it? to run it by people or no? Or... No, no. <laughs> I just wrote. It. I ran it by Glenn. Okay. I was like, what do you think? That sounds great. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> right, and recorded it. And then I guess they were like, "That sounds epic. They're great. Sounds great." Uh, <laughs> what yeah. What did and you then draw that... on for that? What did, What was your inspiration? Were you a
0: big D D fan? Did yeah. you yeah. love, yeah, I mean, love I, this space? I played
1: yeah. D D original white box
0: when I was a kid. Right. You know? So Um, you, you knew enough about the kind of fantasy sphere to not copy something. Played a lot of D and D. Yeah. But you, you didn't just lift it. You kind of created, you started to create your own in your own imagination.
1: Yeah, I did. And it was just this idea that I think just in that moment spawned me like, okay, all I know is that there's orcs and there's humans and they're fighting and the orcs are invading And the only other piece of knowledge I got other than that was, and and we want the bad guy's name to be black hand. Like that was it. That was the entirety of the war. So I started in that first thing, just like, okay, here's this. And they invaded. And it was, if you go back and listen to it, it's, it's, it's vague enough where it still gives you a flavor, but there's not, you know, a a lot of minutia. And then when I actually got hired on there, you know, I, I basically sent a letter. I don't even know if it was an email. It might've been an email at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, where I said, like, I had a great time doing the music. I really want to work in games. I've played games my whole life. Um, I'll do anything to work there. Uh, Alan Adham was president at the time. Yeah. I knew he had just bought a new car, and I'm like, Alan, I'll wash your car. <laughs> I'll I'll manage the bulletin boards. I'll do tech support. Mike Morheim, I knew was a big Magic player because Magic: The Gathering was new, so we oh, all were God. getting into it. I said, Mike. I'll give you my rock Hydra. Cause it was like a, a, rare, right. I'm like, I'm bribing them. I'll do anything. Let me yeah. work there. And mm-hmm. so they brought me in and they hired me. Um, I took a pay cut from working at Kinko's to start oh, wow. at blizzard. I made wow. more money doing desktop publishing and graveyard shifts <laughs> for a copy <laughs> store. than I did starting at blizzard and, uh, and Alan, I remember like the very first meeting, you know, he said, well, I don't, I don't know if we really have enough for you to do, but, we kind of like where you're coming from. And so we're going to give you a job. And I never stopped running from like that day. Like I always had plenty of stuff to do.
0: I bet. I bet. How how much did your initial kind of, you you know, your spur of the moment lore that you went into the recording booth for that CES show, uh, for Warcraft one, how, how much did that sort of stick and was that part of what ended up in the game?
1: Yeah, it really was, because um, that was the first thing that Alan asked. He said, "So he's like, you you can do writing, right? You wrote the that little intro piece." I said, "Yeah, I just did it in the room." And he said, "Great!" And then he told me the extent of the lore, which I have already shared with you. <laughs> and he said, um, "He goes, we need we need to like have all the rest of it." Okay, so, so fortunately, I was you know still naive enough uh, to be to not recognize what this really meant. I was just like, oh, cool, I get to write up a campaign world, which I love doing anyway." So the vast majority of my first six months at the company was originating the Warcraft lore, coming up all the names for everybody like Medivh and Garona and Amazing. Grom Hellscream and all these different things. From Kinko's um, to writing the lore yeah, of Warcraft. And then and then still using my Kinko's desktop publishing knowledge by creating the manual Amazing. as well. Yeah, And one of the things I loved about Blizzard, especially in those early days, you we were always trying to find like, different interesting ways to do stuff that was going to like really engage people, like really capture their imagination. Yeah. So I said, Hey, does that, does that extend into the physical goods we're putting out? Like I want to do something really weird with the manual. <laughs> it's like, well, what do you want to do with the manual? I said, well, I want it to be not on like white paper. I want it on this parchment type paper, right? Cause that's what I've been doing. I've been like, just where I came from. Right. So yeah, oh, I yeah, was know printing yeah. knowledge. So, and I want it to be where you start with the humans and you read all the way to the half of the book. You open it up, that's what the map is. And then if you flip the book over, you read the other direction to read the orcs, right? I'm like, so yeah, because like, it's 50-50. And they were like, okay, that sounds really cool. Do that. I'm like, yeah, you can read either side depending on which you want to start by playing. And then I, the last thing I said, I was like, and you know what would be really cool is like, we should use this, like, uh, it's like, it's a cardstock, but it's like a leatherette looking cardstock, this textured um, cover for it. Uh, So it really looks and feels like it's this tome or something. So we did that. And of course, uh, Davidson and Associates, who owned, you know, were the owners of the company at the time, complained because it was expensive. (laughs) And then Alan said, you know what else we need to do? We need to put a notepad in the book, in the box. And they were like, a notepad? It's a, why would you put a notepad in? It's a video game. And it costs like three cents more, you know, a game. And it's heavier. So it's cost more to ship. And Alan was just so brilliant. He said, because nobody knows who we are. Yeah. And they're going to see another game on the shelf. They're thinking right. about buying. Right. And they're going to walk in and pick up that game and pick up our game. And they're going to say, wow, this has got some heft. I bet you this is a better game. Even right. though it's all digital, didn't matter. He knew that when, you, when you're, when you that's a part of the human condition of comparing value. For sure. And something like that is something heavier. So we did.
0: Well, just the, the, I mean, that's that's Blizzard mythology making right there, you know? Blizzard became known as this austere, you know, prominent, beautifully uh, you know, designed company. Like every element was fetishized and mm-hmm. perfected and tuned before it was revealed to the world, yeah. you know? And, and, and we,
1: I think we shipped those pads in like Warcraft 1, Warcraft 2, maybe Starcraft Diablo. But the reason I, those stick out in my mind is at one point, and I'm sure they have this in the archives at Blizzard. Yeah. At one point, we got a letter and it was from the team that did um the original um oh god now i just fell out of my head the team shooter like the very first team shooter uh unreal or uh, well yeah but it was uh but oh my god oh the, the, the one that came in like there was the, a version of it in orange in the orange box and i'm team totally fortress spacing. yes the yeah. first team fortress thank you yeah. for saving my brain just but Oh, come yeah, out. no worries.
0: We have um, Between the two of us, we have t- <laughs> 10,000 video game names yes. in our brains. We're it, 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 All of you, you need to excuse us if a few <laughs> drop out,
1: okay? This yeah, is they're going to fall out. They just are. Yeah. But I'm going to remember <laughs> weird stuff like I'm gonna yeah. tell you. <laughs> totally. I'm forgetting yes. the title of game. <laughs> but um, the team, the original team that created the first Team Fortress, sent a letter saying like, and it had just come out. It was doing really well, and people were excited about it. And they said, hey, just so you all there know we did the original like design thumbnail on a blizzard notepad and wow. they sent us the page that was the original like design layout of like oh here's going to be the different classes and how like their first sketch of team fortress so i'm sure they've got that in the blizzard <laughs> archives but like that's one hey that paid off pretty cool pretty <laughs> notepad made pretty you
0: know
1: uh, oh my
0: Okay, my my wife put on the alarm as she was leaving. Her. It's like, oh no, everything's gonna go beeping. I've had that once. I was shooting an EP live in the Vancouver Film School, and the fire alarm went off right in the middle of the shoot. And I was like, what? I've never. I don't. What do I do right now? But you just keep how going. you know it's live. Yeah, it's that's right. Yes. Um. So, when did you did you all sort of know that this was catching fire at Blizzard? Like, the, because you already the company already had a history of. Um, you know, you, you did a Justice League game, you did Blackthorn, yep. there's Rock and Roll Racing, Lost Vikings. There were already some really cool brands and and games. But
1: so, when did Blizzard become Blizzard? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that it was it was there in those earlier games. If you look at Lost Vikings, like especially yep. Yep. the the humor and the cleverness of design, like all, all that foundation was there. Um and it was really interesting because I think even when Warcraft Orcs and Humans came out, we didn't know. Yeah. And I remember a a conversation with Davidson Associates. I think Bob and Jan might have come down, and they were letting us know, "Hey, you know, we're going to really bet on this. We're going to ship a hundred thousand copies of the game." Which at that time—that's a lot. Yeah. We're we're never going to sell that, right? That's still a lot in in 2021. You know. Yeah. 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 yeah, That still be a lot today. Yeah. And that was crazy in 1994. Yeah. Um. But it did well. It was critically acclaimed, and then when we did the sequel, I think that's when we knew um, Warcraft, two. Warcraft. Yeah, Warcraft Two was con- I always think of as really magical. We shipped that game in a year. Wow! So look at what look at Warcraft Two. Look at everything that's in there. That was done in about eleven months by how many people? Um, probably by at that point maybe thirty of us. I guess. Wow. You know, um, but that's everything. And it is one of those things where every design decision was the right one. Every right. pixel that hit the screen for art was the right thing, right? It just, it all just kind of happened. And maybe it's because we flowed right into it. We didn't immediately, we weren't immediately gonna make Warcraft 2. There was ideas of, well, we knew we were gonna make Warcraft 2, but where would we set it? Right. And there was this very brief conversation in a meeting, we're all sitting on the floor in Alan's office, like, well, what should we do next? And um uh one of the designers got up and pitched this whole opening cinematic, like, here's the stage, and it's and it's orcs, or it's humans fighting ghosts and orcs, but it's the orcs on dragons, and then humans coming in in F-15s, and it's like modern day, and we're all hmm <laughs> and it and like, in a year. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. And, well, we didn't really have a we didn't really have a timeline. We're just like all we think we just want to keep it just pure fantasy. Right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at the same time, we were talking, we were always talking with other people about what could we do, right? Like I uh, recently, somebody, would, there was a thing on Twitter where it was like, post your post your top three movie flexes. What's the coolest thing you've done in a movie? Yeah. And one of mine was we went to go see Braveheart with Gary Gygax Amazing. because we were talking with them about... Maybe we should do d and right. instead of this Warcraft thing moving forward, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we didn't, obviously, and yeah. probably for the better for at least Blizzard, right? It was yeah. paid off. But yeah, I think by the time Warcraft 2 came out, we felt really good about it. It looked really good. We were doing some really innovative stuff in terms of multiplayer. you know. And that's that's one of the things that I think sometimes gets overlooked in the Blizzard story is how much technology got done for those oh, games. Yeah. The gameplay's great, the art's great, the humor's great, incredible cinematics. But you look at Warcraft 2, we had, I think it was eight players on a LAN in SVGA, right? And people were like, that's impossible. You'll never get that many pixels moving on a screen over a network. It was, you know, when we did it. And we know that that pushed back um, call um, the um, Command & Conquer game because they were single player. Right. Or they were two player, I think. Yeah, yeah we've got to move to multiplayer and we know we shifted their schedule by at least six months, you know, and that, And they were just down
0: a, the street. Oh, well, no, the, the, at that time they were in Vegas. Right? Yeah. They were in
1: Vegas. But, yeah. but the thing that was great about that is I really think, you know, when while we were building along with uh, you know, with them on command and conquer, like I really felt, felt, it was like, we kept having to like do better than the other, like we built on the shoulders of each other's accomplishments sure. to create this real-time strategy genre. Um, and it was it was that, that was truly a healthy competition. Like that was what that was about. They would do something, we're like, that's cool, we gotta do better than that. And they would see we're doing something we're like, oh no, we gotta beat them on that. Um, and it that's became cool. this, I think, really healthy rivalry. Were, were you I guys did. poaching from each other's teams? No, that, no, no that, okay. that really didn't happen, which I thought was also really cool. It was just cool. like, yeah. this is us, we're making this thing. And they were the same way. Um, and we, you know, we'd meet them sometimes. I think they, there was a bunch of them out at one point, uh, visiting interplay, which was just down the road. Sure. Yeah. And so we had a big paintball game with them. Oh, that's stuff, awesome. You know? So yeah, it was really <laughs> cool. And I, I got to know loose castle really well. And yeah, you know, like there, they, it was a very positive thing, you know, by the end. Um, well, and, 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 and honestly, like
0: those were two of the biggest games in the whole business, but they were really like the. The tent pole, like the the giant kind of games that people would point to for PC games as well, they really mm-hmm. legitimized the PC gaming experience, you know. And it's funny yeah. to see what has kind of happened with real time strategy. It still exists, it's still it's still a successful uh, genre, but I don't think it ever got has gotten back to the to the the status of Age of Empires and Command no. and Conquer. And, I- Warcraft. I agree.
1: I mean, it's, it's kind of a fascinating journey. Well, I was in Probable, which was the last, when I was in London, you mentioned I was working in London, right? Was yeah. a tech, uh, gaming tech company. Um, I wrote up a bunch of stuff that was kind of like, we had a lot of people that weren't gamers there or coming from the gaming industry. Right. So I would write up all this documentation. I'm like, Oh, here's the history of gaming. Here's the history of these genres um, and do presentations and things. And one of them, I, I said, you know, the kind of the, the path of real-time strategy and strategy games is really fascinating because before, you know, Herzlack like Spy, arguably, and, uh, and Dune, Dune 2, yeah. right, it was all turn-based strategy. And yeah. I remember having to explain to uh, our PR person that we worked with when the when work was coming out, it's like, so this is real-time strategy. And this is what the difference is between t- turn-based is like chess. You go and I go and I real-time strategy is like, we're both playing chess, but we're moving our pieces whenever we want to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're just trying to find like some basic way to get the idea out there. How, and, how and when you describe
0: it like that, it sounds impossible to play.
1: Yes, but somehow you yes. made
0: it possible to play, right. addictive and popular.
1: Yeah, and popular. And yeah. you just look at that. So you had you know real time strategy, which started out single player, and then went to you know two player, and then went to multiplayer. Yeah. Right. And then went to like lots of people playing. Yeah. Um, and then that- you started seeing it really shift, right? One of the things I thought was great is by the time you got to uh, Dune Two and, and Command and Conquer and Warcraft were very much, you had two sides and they were very equal. Yeah. Then we did Starcraft, now you have three sides and they're all very different in how they play. Mm-hmm. So you have this like very grandiose rock, paper, scissor strategizing that now needs to start happening, right? Um, at that same time, and to me, that's always kind of been the pinnacle of real-time strategy. Because of the explosion of popularity in south korea sure right yeah. and the pc bonds that opened and the esports that occurred around it and you know it's just phenomenal and, and money to this day If totally and you were at blizzard during all of that yeah i was we did a we did a lot of stuff in like that i'm just looking over at my bookcase like i have uh see i'm gonna move yeah you know it's live yeah <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean in the wake of all that, right there was actually uh, this book that got written called uh, Stark yeah, which is a South Korean book, right that talks about like the history of Starcraft and gaming in South Korea and how basically Starcraft created this new economy it's, in their country It's
0: the father of eSports. yeah, isn't it? It really is.
1: yes. Uh, and not that it was intended to be, it's just nope. it grew up around it. <laughs> and so we did, you know, there was a lot of tech and when we, and we added add-ons, we came out with the expansion for Starcraft where we yep. came out with brood war, we put in a bunch of things that let you have like invisible players that you could then use that basically esports broadcasters could use to move around the board. Right. Right. So they could be showing you different ways. Like, like what, what could we do for like TV camera controls? in our engine, basically. We built in a replay system where you could save your game file out afterwards. They were really small because all it did was send it to somebody else's system and then they used the game engine to replay all the moves, right? Amazing. So just all the, all the moves we sent. So we had to do a lot of stuff to, to really have that happen. And then when we got to Warcraft three, that again was another change of going to this, what we called a um, an RPS, a role-playing strategy game, which yep. we tried to make stick and it didn't, but <laughs> we called it that. Uh, and that was all about the heroes. And then that to me is where things just blew up because totally. now Dota happens, which spawns League of Legends, right, and now you've got the whole MOBA that comes out of that. You've got um, all these excursions into other types of strategy games. Tower Defense was another game that came out of Warcraft III yeah, Because people were building these like, hey, we had this idea of like, how do you defend these towers? Right. That spawned a whole nother genre of game.
0: And then Blizzard flips all that around and does hero shooting. Right. And says this this was lifted to create a whole new genre. Why don't we make Overwatch about the characters and the heroes that we're going to invest in? In, Amazing.
1: Yeah, it's it's really it's really uh, humbling to have been a a part of that, you know, and that's. that's on the strategy side. Diablo was the RPG that we made when everyone said, why are you making an RPG? RPGs are dead.
0: Right. Well, and what's funny is when you think about uh, Blizzard as a, a strategy, uh, cerebral game maker, you know, a mm-hmm. game company that really understands um, lore crafting and and myth building. It, it It doesn't compute that it's... A, a massive player in esports. It doesn't. It doesn't somehow correlate that. Nope. This is the like the evolution of Blizzard is so tied into arenas filled mm-hmm. with people watching, you know, televised competition around these titles. That, that I mean, that yep. must be so mind blowing for the seventeenth employee of the company.
1: It, it is. I mean, I still. You know, when I was at Disney, we went. I went over there with uh, with some of the Marvel team. The games team yeah. to meet with some south korean publishers like hey would you come along you know all of them I'm like oh yeah happy to uh and we met with one They like oh we want to take you to uh, a tournament tonight and i was like oh that sounds great and i was like the only person in the room who knew what that meant yeah because i'd been to them so we went and you know i mean this is like 2012 yeah 2011 2012 right yeah. and we go to a mall that has like this big space. They have basically like an esports arena inside this mall. It's StarCraft tournament. People are like there, and they they know the game intimately. They love the players. They know them. Um, it was kind of embarrassing. Like they found out I was there. They put a camera on me, and I'm like <laughs> waving. And you know, and the people I'm with are like, oh, now we understand why everybody's been staring at you. That's amazing. right. And I said, yeah, it's 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 the association of what we did because it became so ingrained crazy, there in man. the culture. Yeah. And it is it, 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 it's mind blowing and humbling and, you know, it, it and surreal.
0: Right. I, I, I'm reading Ready Player Two right now. Have you have you picked mm. this book up yet? It's, it, no, it's so, you know, Ernie Klein does this thing where he really um, uh, well, you, you know, about Ready Player One. You saw the Spielberg yeah. movie, I would imagine. Uh, Like, he really kind of connects the dots to all of these creative brands and all of this Mm -hmm. um, imagination that that game developers and movie makers and TV show people have put out into the world. But there's this meta connection to it all. And Mm -hmm. that must be what it's like for you and other members of your team to go to South Korea and basically be, you know, there's an awareness. There's a hero worship thing that happens there because of the the cultural sort of awareness of of the value of your work. Which must be
1: surreal. And it's really interesting, like Ready Player One. Actually, when that book came out, my wife and I read it to each other. We sat on the couch and read chapters back and forth. Yeah. Um, And obviously, very culturally, the cultural touchstone, you know, dive into everything I grew up with and and love. And I think the thing that is really interesting is, um, I I remember one time I went to South Korea and it was before a, a massive, massive tournament like probably like 85,000 people in this huge sports arena. And, and um I think we were promoting maybe war three at the time. Yeah. And so they put me at a table to sign autographs, but I was out there with esports players. Wow. And like, I had a, I had like a nice little line that everybody else would show up. Right. Cause it's like the difference of like, Oh hi, I made basketball. And it's like, yeah, but I'm gonna go get LeBron James's autograph. Totally. Yeah. And You know, yeah, and, and yeah. it's like, okay. Yeah. And, <laughs> i mean line, hundreds of people lined up you know with flowers and dolls and like all kinds of things you know gifts to bring to their favorite resource players and it's like wow like that is so meaningful it's like a, a thing we made a game yeah right for for to, to have people enjoy everything has created all of this it's meta you know? it, it is. It I really mean, it's is. another
0: layer. It's it's competition, which is a layer of entertainment. It's like layers of entertainment and expression and mm-hmm. appreciation. You know, and it, it's. I think that's one of the things that people don't understand about video games that has always been there. You know, like a movie like Tron right. doesn't come out in the in 1982 and we have, have the impact video. that it does on our generation if there isn't more than just dropping a quarter and and losing time in, in video yeah. games right like people yeah. were completely connected to the to the the storytelling and the imagination of game makers back then you know let's talk about the the 80s and um yeah getting indoctrinated were you a fan of the arcade stuff and I lived in the arcades did I you mean, yeah
1: i've been i've been a gamer since i was a little kid and my parents taught me games to learn math, right? My dad taught me blackjack to quickly count to 21. And my mom taught me cribbage because that's all about 15 and 31, right? Right. So it was, they were using cards and numbers to engage me in gameplay for like, let's help improve your basic math skills. And so I've always credited and blamed them for anything that happened. Uh, and so I grew up playing that. I mean, d came out in 77. So like the same, this is insane, the same year I went out and stood in line to see uh, Star Wars, the first Star Wars episode four when I was 12, yeah. right? Was the same year I started playing Dungeons and Dragons, like just cultural milestones Amazing. for people of an age, right? <laughs> and so through through the 80s, you know, I was I was then, I was playing all these things. I was playing tons of D&D and I would, I'd go and see movies and then go to the arcade. My mom was in a bowling league and she'd be like, oh yeah, here's three bucks and quarters. Go to the little arcade in the bowling alley. Right. Cause that was everywhere. And we actually, um, my parents were friends with, I don't remember who it was, but somebody who worked at Atari and we had a pong like that very first Christmas they were available. Like, they be like, Oh, do you think your son might like this? So even as far back as that, like I had, you know, I was playing Pong on the television. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Where, I grew did up Did you grow
0: up in, in Southern California or did you I grew up in
1: Northern California. Okay, in the, the San Francisco Bay area. Okay, cool. And um and it was it was amazing. Like I my parents were always, you know, as long as I was a good kid and kept my grades up, were super supportive of all that stuff. Except the one time they threw away all my D and D stuff because they felt prey to that kids are gonna start believing in the devil and like oh get no get lost in sewers and like then i was like no and you just threw away like hundreds of dollars oh man of stuff oh no That i worked all summer to buy but okay <laughs> did yeah, you patch well. things up yeah we did yeah eventually <laughs> yeah we did <laughs> but it, the, the thing that that was really fascinating is that you know it we were that first generation i i really feel like kids that got raised on gaming as a primary entertainment source yes right i yep. played Tabletop RPGs. I played board games. I played video games. They, I did, they didn't seeing... need to
0: sell it to us, right? No, no. That's and I think true. the it the previous cool. generation, like our parents, they need to be convinced. But right. we grew up and we were like, okay, well, this is our gospel. This, we believe this. Yeah, this is it. This is yeah. great. Yeah.
1: And it's so amazing now, right? To where we've got second and you know even third generation. Now p- people starting to come into the gaming industry.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Cause it's been around just, I was still, I still think of us as a young industry, but yep. it's that, you know, that old enough now. And I mean, I remember like, I had a, I had a Commodore 128 at home and my best friend had an Apple II. And depending on what game came out, where he'd either go to my house, and we played, or I go to his house, and we play it. I remember going to one of this, this weird almost like flea market swap meet for, for, Consumer electronics and games, and buying from Sertec in a plastic bag—the first wizardry, yeah, you know—and then later to be so fortunate to be able to meet people like Brenda Romero or John, like people like I played your stuff, yeah, like this is formative for me, you know. I I I was the
0: same man, and it wasn't. I mean, like I got to meet you, you know. Like it, it, it's just incredible that uh, (laughs) the business reaches so many people but it's also very open you know and you yeah, were talking and about small. and small and but you were talking yeah. about sharing a uh, a table with esports athletes and this is my thing back to the esports community mm. and i talk about this all the time people always ask me to produce esports stuff and it's like okay but if we're not talking about the people that make these things then you are cutting off your own tail because if you're not inspiring the next generation of game makers. What are the players going to play? You know, are we just going to always have league of legends? That's it, you know, or are we going to shake this up and inspire people to be creators, you know, and And you need need to express that out there.
1: That's the big difference, right? Between esports and sports, if you will. Yeah. Right. They're not coming up with, well, what's the next football? Yeah. The next American football or the next footy or the next basketball. There's like, these are the sports and they make rule changes. But they're still predominantly the same. Right. Whereas that doesn't really work in video games. Right. Even if you're like you look at now and it's like, yeah, there's, you know, there is still real time strategy, but it's not like you would have said, like, well, there's real time strategy and first person shooter and, you know, uh maybe some like uh recreation of physical sports games like Madden or something. And that's it no like there's yes. always new ways to do things the technology allows us to create new ways of playing uh you know new thoughts come up in terms of like well what can we do for game mechanics what's a crazy thought of like can you imagine if there was never like rocket league never got made that'd be crazy yeah. right yeah. just like yeah. there's so many great games that come out through experimentation and trying them and i think you're absolutely right you're like you've got to have this way to inspire the creatives to make the next stuff, as you well do. as people. And th- them.
0: this is the thing that that I, I've, I mean, I, I'm obviously biased because my whole career, my whole life has been to that outreach, right, to go and visit people at studios. But I feel like that is really missing in media right now, and then on YouTube everywhere, it's it's a lot mm-hmm. of experts, it's a lot of people um, that know a lot and and make good material. But I feel like that that connection to creatives is a little bit. Um,
1: splintered and and broken right now. And it it shouldn't be. It's our industry a bit too, right? I mean, I always feel like, you know, for a lot of years, you've been doing God's work in not only from the journalistic side, but then like putting on award shows and like trying to bring that spotlight to the people that make the games, right? And we are not like Hollywood in that way, right? There's, um, you can look at, you know, one of the biggest you know, stars you could think of in the gaming industry. And it's not like somebody goes to them, like they do a director and it's like, Oh, Hey, you know what? I want to pay you $22 million to make a game. That's not, that's outside your budget. Yeah. That's outside your talent. Like I'm just going to pay you that because you're going to drive that kind of revenue. That doesn't happen. No. Right. That's, there is no, even though I would say that there are people as creative it, with, it, as you know, Bill, it hasn't happened
0: careers, yet. It, it hasn't yet. happened yet. Right. And it hasn't happened to the point. I think there's been some risks like maybe uh a license risk or maybe you know like Peter Jackson maybe had some real input on the King Kong game or whatever Mm -hmm. and we haven't seen that massive hit happen where there's a name attached to it and that makes all the difference Hideo Kojima maybe
1: sure Um, yeah I think there's some that are like that but it's interesting because I don't think that I don't think our industry doesn't cultivate that, that pays that same uh Attention or respect, yes. or places that same value on it, right? Like yes, and that too, I, yeah. I, Steven Spielberg, yes, we yes, visionary, incredible filmmaker. We know if he makes a film, it's going to put butts in seats. So we're going to like give him as an individual, right, right, creative lead, like a, a ton of cash and a ton of authority and a ton of autonomy, you know, within our structure. But to to go and create that vision, that just. For the most part, and I know I picked an outlier there, but I think there are far more at a far greater level in Hollywood yes. of of that level of people of directors, right? That can go do that than as a game director or a designer or anything. And you know what?
0: Coach. All of that stuff is greenlit based on the the name, you know, and right. the and the talent and how much box office they've drawn. Whereas right. in games, it's got very little to do with the people. It's no, all yeah. about the the brand and whether it's a sequel and the people. Well, in, and, in, and that's in, been in, con, consistent. It's like the people are replaceable. Like right, like if you look at yeah. Activision and Atari, like they right back to the '80s, Activision, you know, was spun off by angry Atari people that were not getting the credit or the money that they they thought they deserved. Right. And Atari said, "Screw it. There's people that are waiting out outside our door to come and make games for us." Bye. Right. And like, I don't know, it's a weird business, right? It's almost like it forgets that it's an entertainment business made by humans.
1: You know, it it absolutely does. And I think that more so than any other entertainment business, we're we are uh, assisted by and driven by metrics and data, right? Because where we live. So it becomes easier to say, well, you know, as long as I'm running the right KPIs, and I've got the right data coming in, like, Like I just need bodies to make a thing because I'm gonna use, you know, all of my data stream to determine where my choke points are from honestly. Like like it's almost like mobile gaming and free-to-play gaming. Yeah. Like it was a massive boost to the industry. Yes. And has brought in like an incredible amount of people into into gaming. But it's also reduced the specialness of individuals. Oh, man, 100%. A- and
0: also gaming in general. You know, gaming has always uh, tried to shrug off this disposable kind of uh, time wasting, you know. Mm -hmm. slander around itself you know it's always had this reputation as being something that you know you just kill time with right that's exactly what free to play and mobile which is there's nothing wrong with that no but that's what they tap into and the other thing just like Awada was always saying is that once you introduce that into the equation you are evaporating value you are taking Mm -hmm. value out of the equation and so now every discussion around games is is equatable to uh you know, what are you paying per minute or per hour, right? you know, and it's always about what's the cost to the, and it's, it's.
1: And by the way, if you look at it that way, games monetize worse than any other entertainment medium, including books, right? right? The amount of time, the amount of money you pay for a book and the amount of time it takes you to read it. Right. And if you're equating it there, how much time it took me versus how much it cost me games are the worst for the creator. Right. Because you'll have a game where it's like, yes, let's say I, sp- you know, to create that, to buy that game, right? This is about retail price. I spent even, oh my God, $70 in a game, which is a lot for a lot yeah. of people, yes, right? It is. That you are then, depending on the game, going to play for hundreds of hours. Let's say you even play it for 80 hours, right? I think it's like you played a dollar an hour, yeah, right? Plus what other games are so replayable as well. Yeah. And they're replayable, right? Yeah. Like you go see a movie, and, you know, back when we could all go to movie theaters, right? Or you stream it or whatever. Like I go see a first one film and by the time I get done, it's going to cost me 20 or $30 yeah. to go see that movie for two to maybe two and a half hours totally. of entertainment. Yes. Right. Yeah. I could go buy Rocket League for 20 bucks yeah. and be playing it. For years, yes. right? It's it's, and that's the thing that that you don't even lost. have to buy
0: Rocket League now,
1: though. <laughs> it's I know. Well, now you have to buy it. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's free. I just go play it for free forever. Um, yeah. You know, and I I think that's the thing is that gets missed in all this is that part of the creative process is making something that's so fun and so engaging and so compelling and charming and whatever else you want to put on there that people want to keep coming back and doing it yeah right and that does not get done with algorithms that does not get done by an ai no at least not
0: yet yeah right um and but the stuff that people are making is now fighting uh, this kind of robotically designed and crafted and marketed stuff that's out there and and it's uh you know it's good for the business in general because you can sort of put all of those numbers into a big bucket and say we're reaching a billion people playing games, which I yeah. think is a holy grail that the industry's been wanting to reach for a long time but i I would say that we want a billion people that are invested in the notion of why games are worth their time rather than. Right. People sitting. I, I mean, I say this all the time, but the thing that just breaks my heart is walking down an aisle on an airplane. Remember airplanes? They were so. fun. I, rem- I
1: remember them. Yeah, yeah. They,
0: they were. They were cool. Uh, but you'd walk down an aisle on an airplane, and you'd see people just on their Match Three game. And nothing against Match Three, but everybody's got a phone, and they're all playing Candy Crush. And you know, I know it's made Activision a ton of money, but it's just, uh, it, it's it just kills me. <laughs> You know, like I just know that there's so many other way better video game ways that you could spend your time if you just lifted up your head and weren't afraid to spend a little bit of money and right. a little bit of time finding this this art that exists out there.
1: Yeah, you know? I, I think like I it's really it's really interesting. I mean, before I got to Disney I'd never done anything in the free to play space. Mm-hmm. I was very much that grognard who was like, "You, you've got to pay your money for it." We put all the time into it, you know. And then I started looking at those audiences, looking at how to engage players in that way, um, and I became a lot more open to the concept and creation of free to play games. And then where my rub started becoming into um, what I think of as ethical monetization, yeah, right. Like one of the games we did um, that did exceptionally well was Frozen Freefall, and one of the things I was very proud about that we did that with a with a partner studio in co-development, um, that, and I had a team there. Um, my creative, my, my creative team, central creative, was a, a group that I led that had gaming disciplines and marketing disciplines and presentations and videos and music and like you know I had this group of thirty five or forty people wow. that worked across all of interactive, and the thing I was really happy about with Frozen Freefall. Um, was that we used more carrot than stick for yeah. monetization, yeah. right? It was like you got time to play it and to fall in love with it and enjoy the characters, right? And there was a lot of characterization in it too because Disney's very much about story and characters. So it was less about, I mean, it was kind of the first uh, game, like casual game in that setting is match three where you didn't have a little character portrait in a circle in the corner, Right? We had the full character. And when you did a match, like Elsa would be excited or she'd be, oh, when you when you lost a level because we wanted you to connect to the characters in the world. And the game board was like integrated into the way it looked. So artistically, very Disney. Yeah. Very the way we think about it. But then, you know, on the monetization side, You know, uh, I definitely had views of what Disney was like before I got there. Yeah. And then, but internally, one of the things that gets talked about a lot is over delivering, right? Like when people go to Disneyland, you commonly, you did not hear them walk away going, go, man, that was super expensive. And I feel ripped off. Totally. Right. They're like, yes, I had to save up all year to go, but what a magical experience. Yeah. Right. And so much detail. And like, when can we go again?
0: For 60 years, they've been doing that.
1: Yeah, which is and, just amazing. I know. Yeah. And we had and at one point at Disney Interactive, we had kind of an internal motto was interactive moments, Disney memories. Right. So we had this idea of like we wanted things to happen in an inter- interactive way in these moments that would create those memories. And part of that is not having you take a game and go like, man, I can't believe they're choking me for cash. Boom. Right. Right. And throw yeah. the phone down. Right. So we were generous in that way on Frozen Freefall right? Yes, there's monetization and yes, there's points you're like, oh man, if I just had this three more moves, I could have got through that. But boy, that doesn't start until a lot later down. And what we found is that people really appreciated that. They're like, I feel like I actually could play this a lot before. So it didn't feel like you were getting into my wallet, which happens when everything is run purely from a data stream KPI standpoint. I've, I've
0: talked to a lot of AAA devs that have made the move quite comfortably to mm-hmm. making mobile, and there's a lot of people that I know that have made that move, um, and they say they don't, they never want to go back to AAA. They, I, you know, obviously there's monetary benefits, but, I, I, or quality of life, and, um, and I don't mean to be dismissive of that space. I think what's incredible about mobile is, yes, it does put games in the hands of people. That you know, prior to the, the the sort of growth and explosive growth of mobile, they probably mm-hmm. wouldn't even care. They just watch whatever is on cable TV or uh, right. go to the movies, or they, they just wouldn't get into games at all. And I think mobile has really blown all of that out. But I, I have this theory that a lot of people that make video games, that's their, that's kind of how they play games. You know, when you're making a game, you're kind of playing the game. You know, because right. I know that you're all fans of games and. What I know about game makers is that they don't always have time to play. Like the, uh, the competitor stuff, that just they run out of time. They're working all day. Yeah. And so I, th- I think that the challenge of of game making in the mobile space has been something that a lot of AAA devs have uh, been rewarded by. You know, because they have had to try to adapt a mm-hmm. lot of principles and design ideas and and marketing kind of reasoning. And I posed this question to you. Did it feel like that to you? Was it like learning it all over again? And was it kind of like you were
1: playing a new game, reaching a whole new audience? It, absolutely. Yeah. The, one of the greatest things um, about being fortunate enough to have some longevity in this industry is that it changes yeah. all the time every three years, it's completely new. There's a new platform that comes out. There's a new style of game that comes out. There's a new monetization schema that comes out. There's new countries that are bringing like completely diverse talent into the scope, right? Like we look at South Korea now as as a great example and like the great games that come out of there the talented artists and the design. It's like there was a time when they didn't do anything in gaming. They weren't a part of the picture, right? And then their government embraced video games as a way to marry um youth and education yeah right and sciences and improving their economy and and business yeah for sure yeah and business and so they became positively involved boy this is a thing i wish that the united states of america would lean into right like this is not a thing that is uh, a time waster and and dumb and for kids it's like we make more money as an industry than television and film put together. We make more money than I think the top three or four sports put together. Right. Right. It's, it's big business. So if you want to think of it from that way, great tackle that. But, but more importantly, right. It is something that is an ingrained part of the youth of America. Right. Yeah. I have a a four, almost five-year-old now. Yeah. And you know, when I started at Disney, I had no connection to what having a kid was like i had my eyes opened like wow there's a whole different type of games outside of diablo and hellgate right <laughs> that exists and and different ways of playing and different platforms you play on and like what does it mean when you're making a game for a handheld device that's all about educating kids yeah right what's it yeah. like for making something on the wii which i've never done like all these new platforms and new game types. And you know, what's it like when you're making a game about Mickey? Yeah, Like what, that, that's a very, very different thing. That was also the first time I had to work with other people's properties, right? Up right. until that point, everything I'd done um, was like, yeah, we're making the IP. Like a lot of times I got to make the call like, no, nah, i don't like that. Yes, that character can do that. You know, Like, it's very different when you're in the driver's seat than when you're having to go to someone and, and gain that respect for what they've right, created. Right. Right. And, and make the I case mean, for decisions and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it, we didn't just grab whatever we wanted for Disney infinity, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you've got to go in and say, uh, I want to have Rapunzel. Was that to and, Bob Iger? No, Bob, uh, we did get some meetings with Bob and those were always like incredibly, uh, amazing and impressive and a little yeah. stressful. because yeah. Bob Iger. Um, but, you know, if we wanted to work, like if we wanted to do Pixar stuff, right? We've got to talk with uh, with John and we've got to talk with your doctor. Like depends on who built that franchise up, right? Right. But I mean, in Infinity, originally before I was on the project, when the team at Avalanche in Utah, right? And John Vignocchi was yep. a part of that at the time and, and John Blackburn. And they were had this great relationship with Pixar because of the previous games they'd done with them. They originally went and pitched in like, hey, we wanna take this toy box idea we had from the Toy Story 2 game and we wanna make that the center point for this new big game idea we have. We're gonna like mix all these properties and they talked about it and uh, the first response back, right, um, was no because (laughs) because you just can't throw all this stuff together for no reason. What's the reason? What's the story? How do they connect, right? And that led to a lot of work and especially... From the, from the art team um, where uh, they came back and there was this singular image that was Sully and Mr. Incredible. And like they grabbed a bunch of Pixar characters like in an action scene, right? Lightning McQueen, but they all look like toys. They all look like they're part of the same toy line. And it's obvious that they're in a toy world. And that was this, that first inkling of, look, they're not the characters, they're toys of the characters, so, they're self-aware, Right, they know they're not the characters, and this is the digital living room floor. Kids go and they grab all their favorite toys, and I watch my son do it all the time. He doesn't care if they're from the same company or IP or nope. franchise. He's just like he likes these two playing together. He's constantly making stories. Like today, we're going to play Octonauts and the Odd Squad. Like you know, help out uh, Dino Trucks because he's like, okay, awesome. And you just and you go with it. It's imagination, right? At play, and so doing that inside of the Walt Disney company, right. Once we got that blessing to, to make that go forward. And because like, yes, this is a story, this makes sense. Right. Um, it was incredible, man. It it became the most rewarding and most challenging project i probably ever worked on.
0: And it's now the most heartbreaking story. I think one of in, in the entire game industry, you know, I was right there covering all of this stuff and, and, uh, uh, I was absolutely blown away. I'd have mad appreciation for Avalanche as a developer. They'd already done tons of different cool ideas. I love the art design. I love talking to the developers that were crafting the toys and, and all of that stuff together. I'm a big toy nerd, you can probably tell. Mm-hmm. And I love sharing that with my daughter as well. And it blew her mind that she could do all of this creativity. Now she's addicted to Roblox, you know. Right, right using a lot of the fundamentals that, that Disney infinity kind of opened up in her mind, you know, that creativity, what
1: went wrong? What happened? Uh, You know, it's really interesting. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, Yeah, you know, and there was, there was really things like we got right and things that were kind of hit or miss and things that went wrong. Right. The things that, that were right to me, the biggest one was that mixing of the IPs, right. Being able to have, you know, and you look at like the, the very first, images that came out for Disney Infinity, you look at the trailers we did, right? It's Captain Jack Sparrow next to Sully, next to Mr. Incredible, right? And you're like, live action with animation of that, you know, it's like, what, crazy. And they're running around. If you look at the advertising we did, then we had a lot of fun with that. I remember when um, Lone Ranger came out, we did a little thing we put out that had Jack Sparrow coming up to Tonto. And they're like, you know, he's like, hmm, you look good. And he's like, oh, you're a nice looking fellow yourself. You know, or they're, they are they know what they are, right? There's like this meta to it. Um, And it was that, that conscious, like we're going to put all this stuff together, which was the absolute opposite of anything you were ever allowed to do at Disney. And we're like, we're going to figure it out. We're going to be the tip of the spear and figure that out. That was probably the greatest thing we did. And having the respect for the characters and for those worlds and doing that. The hit or miss stuff was what what ips do you choose do you you know and how much do you invest in it right play sets were a big investment for us right in doing that and you know we would we would at times look to draft off of well what was getting a lot of attention inside the company or was the backing of the walt disney company and the lone ranger is a great example right they put a ton of money into that film uh, they put a ton of money into marketing it we did a whole play set around it none of it did very well because it just didn't hit right and so you had these real hit or misses, like trying to identify what yeah, it's
0: almost like you couldn't take a, a risk team. on something coming up. It had to be something that was already right. out there.
1: But you but you had to, that because that was part the market, right? Yeah, Disney yeah. Infinity was all about celebrating the past, present, and future of the Walt Disney company. Like that was our that was our pitch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we had a lot of ways to do that, all the way down to like We're going to have coins, you know, the the power disks that you could use to just props you could get in the game, to having NPC type characters, to having the figures, which were like the most expensive single representation, all the way up to play sets, which is the most you could put into something, right? Yeah, Because that was us spending multiple millions of dollars creating, you know, maybe an eight to 10 or so hour experience set in a specific IP that could only have those IP characters in it. So that's like your biggest limitation against that. We're like Pirates of the Caribbean, we have three characters that played through the Pirates of the Caribbean playset. So those were tough choices to make, right? And that all plays into development costs and your marketing and your sales projections. And like that was the big hit or miss. The stuff that that really harmed it the most, if you will, yeah. Uh, I think the two biggest elements was one, when they moved away from mixing the IPs. And if you look at Disney Infinity 3.0, and you look at the marketing materials, you've got Star Wars, yeah, Marvel, right, Disney, yeah. right, and they're all in their in their separate tranches, and you're like, it's like uh, like where's the where's this that went away, and yeah. I think to the point where people didn't even realize you could still do that in the toy box, right, because of that separation. I think that hurt it, and then I think just the fact that we had a whole physical goods end yeah. of it, right. Yeah. You know, there we were spinning millions and millions and millions of toys, right? We had to make near field communicator readers, right? That had to plug in. And there was a different one for Xbox than there was for Sony because they had different security protocols, right? You're you're Building a lot of physical stuff, and the only way that it made sense for us to do it was to be vertical. Like we did everything: we made the software, we designed the toys, we designed the electronics. We worked with uh, places in China, right, to factories to spin plastic. We, you know, had to get FCC regulation approvals, make things. You just see, like, it's a and massive endeavor.
0: What and an amazing it, amount of incredible experience for you, though, as an executive yeah, in I mean, games. Everybody,
1: everybody, oh, everybody, yeah. How I I know way more about how to make a toy than I ever <laughs> thought I would, um, and ultimately, like it, it was the combination, the weight of all of that, right? Yeah. Which meant yeah. even if you were making great money, top line, boy, there's a lot of hands along the way, right? That are all taking their their pieces, right? Right. Do to you, where do you think like
0: we're in the era of cross-play now and PlayStation publishing on Xbox? You know, do you think that? There would have been. I mean, this is all hypothetical, and and sure. you know, re, in retrospect, but would would you be able to have, uh, um, you know, gone back to the players and said, okay, to PlayStation and Xbox and Nintendo, and said, let's just make it a universal standard. It's one set. It can work on all the things. And do you think that would have made a difference?
1: I, I think, t- to a degree, it would have. I mean, yeah. we had. I mean, we were one of, if not the first game that had um, data that was platform agnostic. Yeah. So I could I could start building a toy box on my Xbox, yep. save it to my Disney account, later download it on my tablet, on my mm. iPad, do some more work on my toy box, build some stuff, test it out, save it back to the cloud, go over to your house, and you've got a PlayStation, right? And so we, we download the toy box and play it together at your PlayStation. And I could have brought my toy and put it on there, right? So we had... Elements of crossplay. What we were never able to do was: you're on your PlayStation, I'm on my Xbox. You know, our buddies playing on their their Wii U. Let's all join together and play in the same world, right? Play in the same okay. toy box. Like that that was the walled garden we couldn't get across. But we yeah. did everything we could to at least make you know the toys physically. Of course, I can bring that with me and go to anybody's house I want to, and then make the data live everywhere. So I think that now when you look at things like a Genshin Impact, which is like, look, you're just going to play our game wherever you want to play it, right? Um, and I think that's, a, that's a, a huge, huge deal to be able to do that. Uh, I, I think that that would have helped a lot. But it, the thing that I think, you know, really got to be maybe the final stake in the coffin is the Walt Disney Company didn't want to make video games anymore, yeah. right? They are like, we want to return to a licensing model, um, which they do superbly. And they have had some fantastic games come out under this model spider-man right like all the mobile stuff like there's just you know like they've they've really have an excellent team there that does that you know and and led by amazing people like john drake and, and you know luigi priori and people that have been in the industry for a long time know the space know how to work really really well with developers right you know and the fact that like i'm super excited to see that you know they're They've decided to to branch outward with the Star Wars stuff.
0: That's amazing. Yeah,
1: right. It's yeah. like, oh my god, I can't wait to see what Ubisoft does with that. You know? yeah. Oh, and forget that the one character maybe more than any other that I didn't have access to inside of the Lucas Vault is getting his own game again, which is Indiana Jones. Yeah, like like yes. day one, it was like we got to have Indy. I got to have some Indiana Jones. And they were like, all oh, Star Wars. We are only Star Wars because this was like F7 wasn't even out yet. They're like no, yeah, we are yeah. Star Wars. And, you know, we had designs for that and ideas for that. or we're like, I mean, I, I grew up, that's one of the things I grew up with that's, you know, was totally. also very influential to me as much as Star Wars. So I love that now through this, this way of licensing, like, you know, they're doing much more than they ever could have building internally. That being said, none of it's for kids. Yeah. And that I think was the real magic of Disney Infinity was that it was built for families. Right. Well, it, it, it also
0: physicalized um, and and made an interactive experience that was very much what walking through Disneyland was like, you know? Yeah. Like, it really correlated. I, and I remember seeing Disney Infinity setups at Disneyland, and uh, it just made sense, you know? But yeah. I know all of the pieces that sabotage the, 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 ability for it to just continue to go. It was yeah. just it's, ahead of its, its time.
1: It's hard, right? Yeah. It's hard when you have something like, we know this is great and it's just, and we know that it works, Yeah, but is it meeting, you know, the, the expectations and the needs, you know, of the company or even the fact that, you know, we were, I mean, if you think about it, by the time Disney infinity three came out, we had the market share. Right, Disney yeah. Infinity was the biggest toys to life game. Yeah, but there were more people involved because so Lego had just come out. Yeah, right. So now it's Skylanders and Disney Infinity and Lego, and and the number of players didn't grow. No. So now we're all competing for the same pie. We're all just trying to get like you know slice of pie. We're like, oh well, you know, I can see how you look at that from a business standpoint, like. How, where's this going to go? Is, yeah. is it a shrinking market? Right. Yeah. It used to, it's like when it used to be like, Hey, I'm the number one game on Macintosh, right? Like, you're, Oh, okay. Well, sure. <laughs> you know, of no players, congratulations, right? Um, not the case anymore, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but that's, I mean, and those are the, those are like the brutal business choices. Right. And that's the whole thing. It's that combination of art and fun of making games and technology with the fact that it's still a business, and you know, I think that's why you'll always see this push for like indie games and indie companies. And can these massive publishers set aside some money to like put into publishing or funding small projects or medium sized projects? So like not everything has to be you know, the next sequel or the yeah. next franchise thing. Like how do we start the new stuff? Um, and that seems, I mean, that's what we're out doing now, right? I'm at author digital and we're out, I'm back in the indie space, you know, we have a team that goes out and we've got demos and, you know, we're like, Hey, here's the thing you want to do. Right. And it's, and it's, it's fascinating. Right. I will say the biggest difference from any time before that I've gone out (laughs) with that, with the hat, looking for, for money to make something, uh, is the, is the diverse nature of funding that's available. Right. Like it used to be you'd go out and there's like, oh, here's the two or three ways you're going to get funding. There's pub dev and there's a VC model. And then there's like, you know, maybe a thing that like, here's a, a home office way it gets done. Now it's like everyone you talk to has at least some slight variation on the theme. Right. So it's, it's becomes really challenging. Right. It's very frothy. There's a yeah. lot of money in games right now, a lot of money getting invested in games. And if you watch the gaming news, like, Unbelievable numbers getting thrown around for acquisitions. Yeah, um, you know, boy, if there's one job I'd want right now, just for like, if I like pushing big numbers around and to be the CFO and embracer, I guess, because man, yeah. they're like buying a lot of stuff. Which I is just amazing. talked
0: about them yesterday in the rundown. Yeah, yeah. It's which amazing. is amazing.
1: But so, at the same time, like you, 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 it's like, uh, it's like dating. You have to go out with a lot of people to find your perfect match. Right. Right. And it's great that there's that many more people, but it also becomes like a lot more work to go on and talk with everybody.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, the truth of it is still there though. Like the, the, uh, the gasoline of the future of this business is on good idea is good ideas and, and, yeah. uh, um, creative risk-taking and, and visionaries that can kind of take us from, from where we are right now. I saw one of the questions in here, uh, and it scrolled by, I can't, I, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know who asked it, but, um, what are you thinking about f- for the future of gaming right now? What are you thinking? What do you, when you look into your, you know, the yeah. crystal ball, um, what are we going to be seeing?
1: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's, there's a few things. One, I think that we're, we're starting to see it now. And there's a couple of really good examples of it, but, um, basically tearing down the walls of the like, caring where you play. Right. Yeah. That's the, that's the promise of things like stadia, right. That's the, uh, that's the reality of things like a Genshin Impact, right? Where it's in like game pass. in Game Pass, right? Like play what you want, where you want, how you want, right? right? Um, I think we'll see more games that are designed to be like, oh, I don't care what platform you're on, what device you play on, right? If you want to play this game, you play it wherever you want to play it, when you want to play it. Um, I think you know one of one of the things that that we're tackling without divulging too much is um, how do we have that same mentality, right? Play what you want, where you want, when you want. Um, But how do you do that within a franchise across genres, Mm. right? So if you look at something like, I always use the MCU as a good example, right? right? Or just Marvel, right? It's like, you got the MCU. Within the MCU, you have like all these different films right? That maybe is the way you come into the MCU, but then you're like, oh, but it's all connected. It's part of a greater thing. And I was then just going to tweet
0: this. I was just going to tweet this. Is there a game series out there where it is it is all connected, but you can play totally different experiences from product to product and it's still part of a massive game world?
1: And it, it and that's what you're working on. Very um, cool. I, I didn't say that, but I'm just <laughs> touching my nose a lot like Santa. Um, but it's the same thing. But then if you look at the greater Marvel universe and especially now with Disney plus, right. You're like, you've got TV shows. That's an agent Shield shielded this too. There's a yep. TV show that ties in the film universe that by the way is drawn from the comics. Yes. Right. And is part of, so you have all these different touch points. I can come into that ecosystem Yes. where I enjoy it. Right. And I can experience it there, but it's all connected. Right. Right. Um, and I think that that's challenging yeah. Right. Because you have to go into it to what, to, to your point, to your hypothetical question. Yeah. Right. Like, how would you do that? You have to go into it, know you're doing it, and have the buy in that, yes, we are going to build games that are going to connect.
0: It, and it that's has to really be with hard. an
1: established IP, though. You couldn't, you couldn't, you, you could do it with an original IP. Right. But and you... I would even posit potentially it's easier because yeah. then you're making the rules up as you go. Yeah. But if you're doing it with an established IP, you have to have the buy in yeah. from the, the franchise holder, right? And the, the people making it. Yeah. They're and and the legacy fans. Right. Because they
0: got to be first in. Yeah.
1: Because the thing that that's tough, right, is if you're talking about like if you were doing it with, like with Marvel, as yeah. an example, right, you're not going to get all these developers to say, oh, by the way, here's all the hooks you have to put in <laughs> to be able to, like, they're like, dude, I'm making my game. That's hard yeah. enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then with, you've got to. Then you have, to have time some or money. way that they connect, right? So it's <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's as much a design challenge and a franchise portfolio management challenge as it is a technology challenge. But so it's, I think it,
0: that's why we don't see it yet. Yeah, but it, it you know it is definitely the future. You know, if we're yeah. talking about the future, this metaverse type thing, you know, like. Uh,
1: it, it, yeah. And it's, it's, we, it's tackling it in different ways. Like Raph is trying to tackle this, right? Raph Coster, right? With what he's doing, he's doing it where it's not disparate games, but he's like he's making like a world right. that you can pick the thing you do in that world, yeah, and you can go have fun just doing that and do that really well, but you're still connected in this massive universe right you
0: know i think i just had yacht club on last week and i think they just did it with shovel knight as well right they just let you play as all those different characters that's an example right there i'm sure people are are putting that
1: in i think that's going to be where like we've got to go right as an industry because it's where so many other places have already gone the 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 thing that makes us unique and i think always makes us unique is that we are interactive media yeah right I can watch films. I can have this connection. And like the MCU discussion and, and example only goes so far. Yeah. Right. Because the thing that doesn't happen is I can't do something while I'm watching the movie that enriches my comic reading experience.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's, put, let's stop there for one sec. Okay. Um, Cause I am a big comic nerd too. And I, I have the, uh, the Marvel ultimate, you know, yep. uh, subscription. So I'm reading just tons and tons of books. Mm-hmm. And I love the connection. I just read the uh, the um, uh, the Vision series that Tom King mm-hmm. did because of WandaVision, and it's right. awesome, and it feels like there's some correlation that's going to mm-hmm. happen in the new show. Like, I don't want to spoil. I can't uh, talk about
1: it. I watched it tonight. I watched you know, it No, so <laughs> it's so good.
0: It's so good. But it doesn't feel like when I read those books, unless they're, they're um, based on the movie, that they're really interconnected and linked. You can see right. where the movie people borrowed what they wanted right. out of the comics but it doesn't go back the other way. However, right. if you read the Star Wars comics, and I don't know if you've been reading the Marvel Star Wars books, those feel like you're reading the scripts for offshoot stories or offshoot right. shows. Like they they are so interconnected because Lucas draws the line exactly how all of this stuff has to come together, right. Right? you know. It's it, it it's a fascinating phenomenon. And it's kind of the inverse. It's like Kevin Feige has got the keys to to Marvel, and he's laying down how all of these different tendrils are going out, but he's just taking inspiration from the books. The books aren't saying this is how you go, whereas with Star Wars it's the movies, but they are being very protective about where all of the storytellers go with all of this. And that, so when you read much the Star Wars those, comics, it's amazing.
1: That's very much how those franchises are built, right? Yeah. One of the things that, that, and again, you you learn a lot when you get to live there and have the honor of working with them, right? right. I mean, yeah. I, I was at, when I started at Disney, one, I was like, I never thought I'd go to Disney, but Warren Spector messaged me. He's like, oh, hey, we need somebody to come in and run some Marvel stuff, which i can do that, right? The games that Disney was building at the time. And I was like, uh yeah, that'd be great because you guys just got Marvel. So I was like, well, I grew up, I went to Disneyland as a kid. I grew up in all this Disney stuff. Oh, and you've got Marvel. Like, I, w- I was a Marvel reader, right? Yeah. Reader. I was all about Marvel when I grew up, whole thing. And then while I was there, they acquired Lucas. I'm like, okay, well, that's like 98% of <laughs> I know, my- I,
0: I noticed your Force Awakens poster back there. And yeah. and so you, you were at Disney as they were making the Force Awakens and releasing- what was yeah. that like for you as a Star Wars? You got Jedi back there, but you've also got Force Awakens. Well, that must Yeah, have been it's insane.
1: it's uh, it's it was amazing. I mean, the big thing was like that was a huge push, right? They acquired Lucas. They're like, we're coming out with Episode Seven, out with Force Awakens. It's a huge deal. Um, you can't touch anything else with Star Wars, yeah. right? I mean, we got to see a lot of stuff early because we were making a play set for it for Disney Infinity. Yeah, um, I had the like ridiculous. Like, I I sometimes things happen. And I talk about them. I don't want to ever give off the impression I'm bragging about this stuff because it's as surreal to me that I got to do these things. Yes. Um, you know, I'm just this guy who got into big video games. Dude,
0: you're you're with the right audience right now. We're all like,
1: <laughs> what happened? So so we were every two years, they would do this executive retreat at Disney World. Yeah. Right. And so uh, I the in the so one the one year I went was um was it was earlier in the year that Force Awakens was coming out. So I had two, like, crazy opportunities. One, each division, and there were seven divisions inside the Walt Disney Company. They did a, um, uh, um, uh, like, not Sing with the Stars, but um, they used to have an attraction that was not the voice. The other one, America... Uh, no, america's got talent american oh, idol god. or american, american idol. idol my yeah. god there we go yeah. Yeah. one thing that's in my brain yeah we so should they had we american, know the,
0: all the reality shows they're part. all the same yeah yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but the the but they had the american idol attraction there where people yeah. could sign up so they said oh we want one representative from each division to come and do american idol right for all these executives so we had a competition inside of interactive and i won So then I got to go represent interactive. Right. And so it was crazy. It's like, I'm singing on the, like, you know, yes, it's an attraction in the park, but you still are like, Oh, this is really great. And like John Lasseter was one of the judges and like, he played the the Simon Cowell role, you know? And so it was like really fun. Um, We did that. And so I was like, Oh, okay. And that was for me lucky because it was like, Oh, that was the first, I think the first one I went to. Um, And so I got to like suddenly now everybody at least knows my name. So now I'm getting to meet all these other executives from parks and theatricals and, you know, Imagineering and all these different places, which was great. So I'm like, oh my God, that was the best way for me to like, at least everybody knows my name so I could talk to them now.
0: That's awesome.
1: Um, but then the the film group always does a big presentation and they come up and that's where before shareholders and you see it, they're like, here's the slate of films that are coming out. Like, so they're like, here's all the, here's all the Star Wars stuff, here's the Marvel stuff. And in the Star Wars one they like, okay, um, we have something really special. We're gonna be showing you the first 23 minutes of Force Awakens. Amazing. <laughs> and everybody's like, What? <laughs> and you've got like executive vice presidents that have been at the Walt Disney for 25 years. They're like, oh, like everybody's a kid again. Yeah. Right? And they and the lights go down and they start it. And it went, it was the film all the way up until Han and Chewie come on the bridge. Oh, right? my God. the Falcon they Chewie, like, oh yeah, I'm home. And like, we're home. Yeah. Right. And everybody got, and I just said it right now, I got chills and then that was it. That's where it ended. And you could hear every single person go, oh, like they're all like, no, what's next? I know, right? That's fantastic. And and so it was, it had that kind of impact, not just like what could it do to the bottom line and how much money do we pay for the acquisition, right? It was about people were like, yes, new Star Wars, oh my God, I saw Han and Chewie. Like who is Ray? What what's happening? Like it, it was all that excitement and electricity. And one of the things that Star Wars can do for me is it can make me 12 again. Yeah. And that happened during the last episode of the most recent season of Mandalorian. Yeah. yeah like twice, two yeah, times. Yeah. And my wife would tell you, I stood up out of my chair. I was like, oh, Oh my God! I'm like you know, <laughs> freaking out, right? Um, and I don't know. I don't know how how long things have to be spoilers, but uh, you can imagine uh, where those scenes are. Yeah. <laughs> if you watch that episode, oh, uh, one of them is right before the end of the episode. The other one is after the credits. Those yeah. are the two for me. Yeah. Um, and and it like more than anything, right? And maybe it's because of when I saw it. Maybe it's because of my obvious connection to it, right? it still can do that to me. And to me, that's like a hallmark of great entertainment and great storytelling. And I talk to people that have those feelings with video games, Yeah, right? I still have people, and this speaks to what a brilliant uh, uh, storyteller Chris Metzen is. I have people that can be like, like, oh my God, Kerrigan, right? They remember the moment in Starcraft where Kerrigan's betrayed by Minsk, right? And then comes back as the queen of, Blazers. spoilers again, uh, you know, again, <laughs> it comes back on the Zerg side and they're like, all de- oh, <clears> that was crazy. Like you look at the lore that has built up over the 20, last 25, 26 years around Warcraft, right? It's become this zeitgeist. I talk to people that don't know video games at all, but I mentioned Warcraft, like, oh, you mean like World of Warcraft? Cause it was a Jeopardy answer, yeah. right? I mean, it's like, it, things reach a certain point. And so people have that connection. I've met people that met playing video games, established a relationship, playing video games, got married. And that's how they met. I, I, I'm a, um, in the universal life church. I'm a minister. Yeah. I've married people. I have two friends of mine that got, that I married. I performed their service and they met playing world of Warcraft. That's amazing. All their guild mates were there. And they had me write stuff into the ceremony that was like, "By the power invested in me by the state of California and the Kingdom of Azeroth, I now permit." Like, like it's all in there, right? Because that's that's their cultural touch point that has meaning to them, and I think that's you know something that when you're crunching numbers on game systems or figuring out where your monetization choke points are going to be or how much money gets put into marketing, you 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 can lose sight yeah. of that other element of it. Well, I
0: think that there's something about um, just hearing you talk about it. It's like we're having a conversation next to a fire and we're camping or something like that. And I think that there's something pure with the way that we make stories, whether we play them in games or watch them on screens or read them in books. If we can say them in, in front of a fire and still move somebody, that's the value. You know, and that's mm-hmm. what I don't want to see happen with games. Like my, my biggest fear with games is that in the future it will be robots making games for robots. You know? Like it's yeah. just gonna be data, 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 drill, drill, drill. And you know, like if you if you get really trippy, like if you're like smoke a joint and just go all crazy with this, this this kind of cyborg reality that we all live in, like always connected to the internet. If you extrapolate that and we're always connected to the Internet and uh, we all have the same access to the information, where does, like, we lose our humanity, right? And I feel like games could do that the way that they make them. If they forget that we're not just, uh, you know, a data point, we're, we're passionate. You know, we're different tastes and different ideas and different intersect points in. But when you create content, it needs to, when you create like Star Wars or what, it needs to uh, bring us all in too, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the kind of thing too, where, you know, I just went and (laughs) I was quickly tapped out to having to find like the transcript of, you know, like that original intro for, for Warcraft, which of course I have no distinct memory of writing, but you know, it was all about, you know, in the age of chaos, two factions battled for dominance. The kingdom of Azeroth was a prosperous one. The humans who dwelled there turned the land into a paradise. The knights of Stormwind and the clerics of Norsha Abbey roamed far and wide, serving the king's people with honor and justice. The well-trained armies of the king maintained a lasting peace for many generations. Then came the orcish hordes. I mean, it's like it, the whole idea is like, how do how do we set the stage? Yeah. Right. And the thing yeah. that I love about games is like that's all how do we set that stage? Because then the player is going to be in the game writing their story. Their history and it's their story. Their yeah. it's yeah. their story right. Yeah. Um and that's, that's just, why I love
0: it too. That's why I created EP. It was like, oh yeah. my God, this is this is a medium that is uh it doesn't even know what its potential is, you know. It doesn't we don't because it's constantly reinventing itself. And mm-hmm. holy crap, we have to expose this creativity to the world because it, it is and I limitless. still don't
1: think we know what the potential is. We don't right? every you know every don't. time something happens that yeah. becomes this like massive explosion. Yes. Right. It's people like oh wh- where did that come from PUBG? Where did that come from? Right. Totally. Yeah. And I mean I love and we both know Gary Widow really well, right? Yeah. yeah. I love that that Gary took Animal Crossing. He's like, oh I'm gonna do a talk show. Yeah. In it. Like we're gonna take these two disparate things. I'm gonna take Twitch and I'm gonna take a video game and we're gonna put them together. Yeah. Right. To then create this new form of entertainment. It's wonderful. Right. It's yeah. just it's that and that's what I love about it. Cause I think that that people that play games are also incredibly creative. Yes. Right. Um, and that's why they play them because they're interactive. They're like, Oh, how can I solve this puzzle? How can I find a way to do this? How can I, you know, win this or collect this? And And they're the ones that are always crying, like, we want more story and better story. And what do I get to do as a character? And when you look at, like, you know, like you talked about your daughter that grew up playing things like Disney Infinity and Roblox and Minecraft, I posit that, that today, they don't want to just sit through your story. Yeah, They want to be a part of it. They want to have some way to control it or contribute to it, right? So it's not just sit down, shut up and play my game. Like, can we create experiences even from a storytelling standpoint that are more um personal and and more open to the input of the player yeah to take you a different direction like the telltale stuff scratched that itch right i made a choice the choice meant that that character lost an arm later in the game they still don't have an arm hey <laughs> consequence to my to my choice my yeah. action yeah right that's the like that's the tip the tippy tip of the iceberg yes right i'll i'll be fascinated to see in the next 25 years where we go
0: yeah it's incredible uh bill this this was the fastest hour and a half i've ever <laughs> ha- had talking to somebody and it was, i talk a lot victor i just no, go on know but and it, on and it, on. It, it's fascinating and i know everybody that's tuned in is uh i, I saw somebody tweet this is the best podcast on the internet <laughs> and it, it's just you know it's, it's a fantastic conversation and i think everybody that's here would agree um uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to any questions, uh, but here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to make this part one <laughs> of our chat. Sure. You know, because there's a ton we didn't get into, and there's there's many other aspects to your career and your drive and your passions. We didn't get into your music making, all of this stuff that I wanted to talk to. I didn't expect the hour to fly by that fast. You know, like it really. I looked up and like, holy crap, it's four o'clock already. Because
1: um, you ask good questions, Victor. It's all on you. You, oh, you bring it out.
0: Thank you. Well, I just wanted to have this convo. I've got a lot of pleas. Let's keep it going. I have a rundown I have to finish. I have to post that, and I've got a weekend that I have to have with my family. So, um, But I would love to have you back. Um, All right. and yeah, I, You can deal. take it offline. We, we don't have to sort of commit to the date right now. But a, as soon as you are free, I would love to pick this up again and, and uh, dive a little bit deeper into Disney and dive a little bit deeper into Hellgate London. And you moved to London for some time. I did, yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I wanna, I wanna bring all of that into our next conversation. And so can we call this part
1: one? Absolutely, I, yeah. I'm all in. Awesome.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was Bill Roper. And uh, as you can tell, he's a fascinating, very storied individual with lots of great uh, you know, experiences to share. And we'll have him back on Vic's Basement very soon. Thank you so much, Bill. That was wonderful. Thank, thank you, you for inviting me into your basement. Vic. Oh, you rock, man. Thank you all for watching. Um, and thank you for listening. And those that are listening, you can watch these shows. And I've been doing them live, actually, on Fridays at 3 p.m. Pacific on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash EPN TV. And I also want to uh, give a big shout-out again to our sponsor, The Gaming Stadium. They are Canada's leader in online eSports tournament facilitation. They've got tournaments going on every weekend. You can find out more at tgs.gg. All right. Thanks, everybody. We will see you soon. And until then, play forever.